This week's episode is brought to you by Solar Flare Games. Their newest game, Robotech Crisis Point, is coming to stores soon and is currently available in pre-order. You can find it at tinyurl.com slash crisis point. Based on the Robotech anime, it is a two-player head-to-head strategy game putting the Robotech masters against the army of the Southern Cross. You and your opponent deploy your mecha and combat units battling to gain control of the Earth to see who can turn the tide of the war. The game plays in about 45 minutes and may be enjoyed by any level of game player. The pre-order of the game comes with some special limited edition and exclusive Robotech extras. So check out the pre-order for Robotech Crisis Point by Solar Flare Games today. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about economics, talking about what it looks like to design an economic game, a game with lots of systems and mechanisms that are all about money and, and bribes and, and you know putting money over here and money over there. And we're talking to Adam Chun and Woody Hutzel from Hachu Games. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. All right, I am super excited to talk to you guys. You guys come from a tech background. You come from the economic sector. You, you you know a lot of these different ins and outs of the real world economics of things. And you found some really cool ways to translate that into game mechanics and create some interesting systems for your new game you got coming out uh, on Kickstarter right now. And so I'm excited to talk to you guys about how in the world you did that. Because this, this is a bear. This is a behemoth of a, a challenge to do this. Uh, but before we get into all of that, tell me who you are, how you got into game design, how you started working together, all that kind of thing. Okay, so this is Adam um, talking, and the I, it started for me um, about five years ago when I won the Board Game Geek Grand Prize to get a free trip to Essen. I think it was sponsored by Queen Games. Anyway, I got I went to German, you know, Essen, Germany, and then I had a real surreal pro, uh, issue or same thing happen while I was at Essen, where I won every single game I played. We played like three games every single day and you know, all sorts of kinds of games. And I want all of them. <laughs> anyway, I was talking to people afterwards and, you know, uh, you know, people were being mystical about it and said, Adam, this means you need to go into the board game industry. So <laughs> fast forward a little bit further. And I'm talking to Woody about starting a board game you know, company. And he was like, I'm in. And, you know, I don't really know what got him to say that, but you know, the reason why I was posing it was because I had that really great experience at Essen. So it's almost like Rounders, where Matt Damon's character like just hit a, a stroke of luck, and he's like, "I can't lose," and right. then just like put it all in. Is that what you're saying? That's it. It's exactly <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Woody, what, what about you, man? Yeah. So this is uh, this is Woody Hutzel, and uh, so Adam and I have known each other for I don't know close to thirty years now. So we we've had a, a lot of back and forth, and I, I can say fairly that he doesn't win all of the games we play. <laughs> Uh, though he does, uh, he does win more than his fair share. Uh, in any case, you know, what really drove me is uh, I had been in the uh, technology industry for most of the last 30 years and uh, the last 20 in particular focused on an emerging technology market. Uh, so I was really uh, fully engaged in a product that went from, you know, the earliest stages of a market when it was maybe, you know, $20 million market size for the entire world. Uh, to becoming a multi-billion dollar market. Uh, so I saw how uh, what customers want 
changed over that period of time. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's one of the things that struck me as we were deciding what to do with this game. But why board gaming? Well, frankly, I had a kind of, I don't know if mastered is the right word, but I'd spent a long time doing technology uh, marketing and helping people learn how to uh, you know, sell technology goods. And I thought it's time to do something different. Yeah, very cool. And so, you know, I'm really interested to talk to you guys about how in the world you, you put all these systems together for economic games. But before we even get into that, what is an economic game? Like what, let's, let's really like set the definition before we get started. Like what are we really talking about here? Yeah, in my opinion, the, an economic game, I, just probably at the highest level, is taking some segment of how a, a market works and uh, translating that market into uh, something that you could play on a, a board in front of you, right? Um, so I, I think that's a very broad example. But, you know, you can look at, uh, there are a variety of economic games that are out, and I, I can think of uh, several I've looked at and kickstarted over the last uh, few months even. Uh, but the point is they range from uh, games that model uh, the stock market uh, to games that model selling energy. Uh, you can think back to Power Grid, for example, uh, to games that uh, are railroad games and the 18xx class of games. So there's a lot of uh, richness in the category. And there are a lot of people who get really into, into uh, you know, doing their best game playing uh, when they play their economic games. And it's always appealed to me because for whatever reason, there are plenty of games I try to get into. And if I don't kind of immediately understand the theme, I have a much harder time picking it up. Uh, and so those are almost always the games I'm gonna lose for quite some time. But the economic games, on the other hand, I, I grasp more easily uh, so that's certainly what led me to gravitate towards that area. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Woody's uh, kind of glossing over is that I believe this thing started in his head out of frustration with teaching people that were working under him the you know the the simple rules of marketing high tech. So I mean, when I when we first heard of this, I mean, Woody was he was trying to make a game that he would teach he would play with people that started underneath him, you know, to learn the basics of his job. Right. And to understand emerging economy or emerging markets. Yeah, gotcha. So this really started with a real world idea. And more, it wasn't just, hey, I've got an idea for a game. Oh, cool. It kind of simulates real life. It was, hey, this is real life. How can I turn that into a game? No, that's exactly right. This definitely started with a, you know, all right, so I've decided I'm going and doing some board gaming. What's what's a game idea? And, you know, it's one of those things where you, you sleep on it a few nights and you wake up with an idea and you go, hey, this might work. Uh, and it wasn't based on, uh, I think there was one mechanic that kind of drove my thinking in, in the very earliest stages. And that was something out of the uh, game uh, Trains. Because um, Trains combined some, what I'll call light deck building uh, with a map. And I thought, you know, to me, this makes deck building more interesting uh, than just like a Magic the Gathering type scenario where you're playing cards against each other. Uh, but now you're interacting with a map. And that was kind of the core of the gaming part of it. But then applying a, uh, the, the business idea I had to it or the model I had to it was actually pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, mostly because, again, I spent so much time thinking about 
how emerging markets evolve. Right, and uh, one of the other things that was really interesting about Woody's take on the on how to model the economics is that at the time, me and about four other people were really enamored with the app version of Ascension, which is you know it's a it's a it's a deck building card game, but the de the actual card game is kind of cumbersome. It's a little it's a it's clunky and kind of hard to follow, but the app keeps track of a lot of things. And so I was talking to Woody about some rules that I wanted players to basically take their turn um, away from other, you know, no interaction on your turn. So it would translate well to an app. And a lot of this just clicked with Woody. And I, the game that we ended up, that was one of, you know, one of the, one of the rules was no interactions. So, you know, he was able to apply, you know, whatever, you know, my flavor of the month, rule at the time in, in into his uh, economic simulation. So it ended up, you know, I think that's still a big strength of the game is the fact that, you know, when you take your turn, you're you're solidly only working in your own world. Right. So, and I, I think what I'd emphasize about that, because some people would look at uh, Plunderbund and say, well, uh, you know, it is a high interaction game in that what you're doing on the board is affecting other players, but you're not discussing with those other players how you're going to act. So, um, but yeah, that was definitely one of the highlights. And then it also gave us a way to uh, have players act simultaneously in some cases, uh, such as uh, when they're preparing their turn and then act in a turn order when they're actually taking their actions in a way to compress the game. Because that's one of the challenges, I think, with any game design, especially when you're looking at a, a bigger game like Plunderbund, is how do we how do we not make sure this isn't a six hour game, right? What can we do to accelerate gameplay to make it enjoyable, to keep people connected and interacting? Yeah, and I guess the point I was trying to make is that the real struggle in the beginning was to make the game not be work, you know, because <laughs> I mean, that's really, you know, it, it, you know, how do you make, how do you take something that's supposed to be a, a learning tool and make it enjoyable? So that's where these rules came in. So in order to make an economic game or anything that's, a lot of math and a lot of know-how and make it fun you start you need to start applying rules to make you know you know to turn it to fun and less work and that's you know the, that was the first step and you know when woody came up with this you know we were on i when i, I want to say it was like the second time we played it i was like this is this is what we're running with woody you know i was a early i bought in early on this idea all right, very cool. I want to hear more about you guys' process and your development and all that in just a minute. But first, let, let's talk about why these games are appealing. I mean, there's so many, like you just mentioned, so many different genres, different kinds of games, whether it's trains or stock market or whatever. There's so many of these games that come out every single year. People just continue to flock to them. Why do you think these style of game, this style of games is so uh, so popular? And then like, let's talk about some like uh, examples that you guys have loved that maybe kind of uh, influenced your own designing. Yeah, so I think that uh, the thing that makes it appealing to me is just the accessibility. Uh, we all in our daily lives interact with the markets, right? You know, whether you're going to a store to, to buy a product or uh, you're working for a company that's uh, buying technology goods or, uh, you know, you're working sales or, I mean, there are just a variety of reasons that you can kind of immediately connect to an economic game. Uh, maybe you're an investor, and so you get into understanding, you know, the mechanisms of how investing works, uh, whether that's as a 
early market investor or as a uh, stock market investor. So that to me is one of the yeah. nice things. And the other thing that's nice about it is that I think everyone has a basic understanding of how economics work to some degree. And so what's nice about a game is when a game gets it right, you know, where you feel like you you can guess how things are going to work out based upon your knowledge of economics or, you know, um, you know, because you've played the stock market, you know, then there's a certain it feels really good. Like we uh, early on, we were playing Mombasa, which is um, it's a it's a game about you, you. I guess you invest stocks in companies in imperialistic uh, uh, what Britain, Africa, something like that. But, you know, there's a you're removed from. That there's agents on the board that everyone's investing in simultaneously, and then you're kind of betting on which one's going to win. And um, that what I really liked about that is that it felt, you know, it had a lot of moving parts, but once again, your interaction with other people was distant. So I interact with this this stocked entity, and then somebody else interacts with it, and their interaction changes it. So I mean, the, the economic an economic game. I think the best ones are like that that you influence. You, you have a mild influence on something external and everyone else has a mild influence on that. And then everyone's playing against that, you know, slow moving, slow to change entity that kind of sits over everybody. Well, and, and the other thing I'd say is we've had a, a <clears throat> number of people who played this uh, compare it to Boot Chain Magnet oh, yeah. or Magnet as, as an example. Uh, and it's another game that, uh, you know, th there's a lot to learn uh, in terms of the mechanics of playing uh, that game, but uh, once you got once you get into it again, it all makes it can all, it all come it all comes together because you can understand you know what it means to you know build a fast food location and have people who are interested in buying that kind of uh, you know whether it's pizza or hamburgers or whatever right so um, so food chain magnate is another one that. While it wasn't an inspiration for our design, it's one I look at now as a, a good example of uh, an economic simulation, but very tightly focused, right? I mean, they uh, didn't venture broadly outside of that specific model. Uh, and some games, you know, are very focused again on like the stock market side, and they don't venture very far outside of that model. Right. In the, yeah. I mean, you know, the, you can see economics in a lot of games. Like I'm currently really enamored with um, uh, Feast of Odin. It's an Uwe Rosenberg game. And though, you know, it has you getting on a ship and going and plundering and discovering new worlds. I mean, there you can just sit and raise sheep and sell them. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's got an economic dimension in it that which really adds a richness to that game. So, I mean, that, you know, it's not, I don't think anybody would call it an economic game. But I mean, definitely that there's an economic dimension in a lot of games, especially the heavier the game gets, the more likely it has an economic component where there's a monetary transaction or a monetary entity, you know, adding, uh, you know, adding depth to the game. Yeah, definitely. And I think you bring up a great point about accessibility with these games is everybody deals with this kind of stuff on a daily basis. Whether even if all, the only time you really interact with the economy is when you go to McDonald's and you pull money out of your pocket and you give it to the guy and they give you a hamburger. I mean, that's that you could turn that into a game. And if you think about 
honestly, what real life is, it's kind of an engine building game where you, you know, you start off, you, you get your job, you trade a little bit of time for a little bit of money, and then you upgrade yourself. You, maybe you get some more education, get some more skills, get some more expertise. And so now your engine gets a little bit better. Now when you trade time in, you get more money. I mean, that, that's life. And so if you can turn that into a game, I think people already kind of naturally understand what's going on, especially if you can emulate, you know, real life things and turn them into uh, game mechanics and things like that. And so let's, let's kind of move into talking about your process. What was your process? You mentioned, you know, you were seeing real world things and you're trying to teach people you know, how to understand stuff. And so let's, let's kind of gamify this. So tell me your process of, of turning real life stuff into systems, into game mechanisms. Yeah. So it, it started with uh, probably a very, a, the, the very central mechanic of this was that you've got an emerging market. Okay. Um, and so I wanted to, I, I put a lot of thought into, okay, what are the key things that drive uh, demand in an emerging market? And then once we kind of had that in place, I said, okay, well, there need to be uh, customers, right? <laughs> for these, for these goods. So how do we model that? So when I, when I think about that and I was applying my work experience, well, those, those customers were spread across the U S or across the globe. Uh, and you would have, uh, salespeople who would be responsible for selling those goods into different locations, right? So that that then tacked on another element to the emerging market part, right? So the emerging market helped us think about how to do demand. Uh, of course, once you have demand, how do you handle supply? That was that all kind of came together as a package. But then, what about how does the customer get the goods? That became a, a different model that we needed to add on to make this all hold together um, and then come up with, okay, now that we've got that, how, how can we make this work like a game needs to work? Um, and how do we keep from going too deep? Cause that's probably been our biggest challenges. Uh, you know, there, we could have gone in different <coughs> dimensions uh, with this game uh, to deepen it, to make it more of a simulation than a, than a, a board game, I guess, the way I've put it. Yeah. The uh, just to add on to that, for our, from our real world experience, and that this is actually mirrored in the game uh, pretty tightly, and that real world experience is at the beginning of an emerging market. The the primary catalyst for demand is how is your marketing? It's how much you how glossy you look, how pretty your products are. And then the technology that you that you promise, which is you know how ingenious the how ingenious your product line is. So that's what gets you all your pre-sales, and it'll actually extend into your product, the early part of your product life cycle. But what happens is is that if you if you're you don't have good support or you don't have you know your product is buggy as all get out. And I'm, I'm the engineer in this, so you know this was my problem. The um, then you start losing credibility and you start hurting sales. And then, so quality matters at the in the middle to late part of a product life cycle. And then, once you get your quality taken care of, then it all comes down to price. You know, you your your uh, demand is driven by price exclusively because you start having um, competition and they're driving their price down. And so, you know, our economic game starts off with appeal and ingenuity being the primary drivers in the beginning, quality and price being the primary drivers in the at the end. So, I mean, that right. So that was one central part. And uh, that's that core emerging market aspect. And, and then in addition to that, you have to say, well, uh, you know, you can't just have uh, salespeople and uh, a market simulator. 
uh, how does how does the product get developed and improved, right? So that was part of developing this cast of characters uh, that end up playing a central role in the game and as part of the deck building mechanism um, to say, okay, well, now we need workers in these startups that are building into emerging economies. Uh, so we put a lot of thought into, okay, what are the roles that we need to play? So that led to another kind of, uh, you know, what I'll call the startup model aspect of this. So you can see, I guess the point really is that we were very thoughtful about what we tacked on, but even more thoughtful about what we left out to avoid added complexity. And it's always a struggle, I think, to know when to stop, you know, when to draw the line, uh, because that's, you know, you really want to make it more and more accurate. And for those people that are, you know, really into that, you want them to feel like it's not broken because it's a game. But on the other hand, you want the people who are the vast majority of people who are playing who aren't going to maybe go way deep into what the economic story is to un to appreciate the game side of it. Right. Yeah. And so let's let's keep talking about that. Uh, this is a big you know problem that a lot of games have is is figuring out like what do we simulate. What do we abstract out? And so walk me through your your process of figuring out, okay, we're going to keep this in as a simulation. All right, we're going to pull way back on this. Or we're going to get rid of this entirely. We're going to abstract this over here. Like help me understand how you decided, like how you made those decisions about what to go deep in and what to, you know, kind of gloss over. So this gets back to why does it take two and a half years to get a game from idea <laughs> to market? Uh, <laughs> and, and the answer is that, we experimented along the way. So the core of the game uh, stayed the same. We're, we're modeling an emerging market. Um, but one of the, I'll give you just one example of one of the things we've done. So uh, we have this mechanism that puts demand uh, onto the board. So this represents a customer being interested in a good with a certain kind of characteristic. And uh, so what happens is, uh, the players are moving up on different tracks that reflect how good their guild is uh, or their, because we haven't gone really into the theme of the game yet, but uh, how, how good their sales organization is and, and bring uh, a product to market. Um, so we had to, we had to kind of solve a problem. Well, we could uh, just have this big pool of demand coins and effectively randomly draw them and add them to the game which is the, the simple approach and made the game, you know, extremely playable. Uh, or we could go a level deeper and say, well, so demand will actually be driven by uh, where each player is on these different competitiveness tracks. And what we determined after some ex experiments was that going that route was just too complicated. And it made the game too uh, twiddly. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, people were twiddly. reading the bags and <laughs> yeah. yeah, taking pieces out all the time, and it was just getting messy. So, so sometimes it was just experimenting. Sometimes it, it didn't take that right. You know, it's just a thought experiment. So you you know what your core mark you, you know what your core model is, and you say, okay, are we pushing the boundaries? Are we making the big game too big? Are we adding too many components? Are we adding complexity? Uh, and, and rather what we tried to increasingly focus on uh, were probably two things. One is, you know, 
responding to customer feedback during playtesting was a big thing. So, you know, we noticed, okay, some players really like this aspect of the game or thought this aspect could be stronger. So we kind of focus on improving that. Um, the, the second thing is that we wanted to uh, simplify the game because what we had was already kind of complex enough. And, you know, once you start trying to put all these things into rules, you, you realize what you've done. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the best way to put it. Uh, you know, once you see it in the rule book, you're like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, this reads like a, a D&D like yeah, yeah. rule book, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might be a problem. How do we simplify it so people don't go, okay, forget this game? Yeah, we have another example that's actually, that took a while for Woody and I to come to peace with the change. But in the original version of the game, we had, an, we had a middle manager mechanic where you had to put a middle manager out on the board in a certain region in order to unlock that region. And with this, it was a gating mechanism and it was, it, it, it mirrored real life. I mean, when you open up like the European market, you generally have to have somebody in Europe that's managing all of your sales contacts, right? I mean, there, there's just too much to do. So you have to have a middle person to engage the, the end salesman. Anyway, a gating, a gating mechanic is not fun, you know, just, you know, having having to do stuff in order to open up regions isn't fun. Anyway, we had one of our play tests. They said, why is this here? And Woody and I, I mean, it took a while for us to accept removing it. But once we removed it, the game became a lot better. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So that's that. That's exactly it. So that's actually that's actually even a more uh, accessible example than the one I gave for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point is. How do you simplify a game? How do you keep things? How do you, how do you put things in that make it more fun and less work? Right. Yeah, definitely. And you bring up two really uh, good points. One is if, and this is something I've dealt with lots of times. If I can't explain a rule in text, I have to cut it from the game. Like there's been so many rules I've come up with. Like, okay, this is cool. I add this to the game. It's like, but how do I, how do I write that down in a way that people are going to understand? Like I can explain it, you know, but, but how, how can I do that, you know, visually? And it gets a lot more difficult. And so sometimes you just have to cut out rules, cut out pieces of your game just because players aren't going to understand them because you're not going to be at the table with them. And then I think another really good point is if something's not fun, cut it unless it really has to be there for balance there's some game me mechanisms like they just have to be there like there's so many games where you have to feed your people right and that's just part of it and feeding your people is not the funnest thing in the world right. but i feel like a lot of those games need that to kind of keep the leader from maybe running out ahead of everybody else and or maybe just kind of keep resources a little tighter you know so they kind of have these mechanisms built in to, to keep the balance going but i feel like in general if it's not fun like why, why are you using it and so i'm really glad that you guys decided even though it's hard to cut stuff especially when it's your baby uh, but you're like you know this is this is for the best yeah, and it's it's. I'm glad you mentioned that game because one one of the one of the limitations for us is we try to put as much as we can on the playing cards that people are using so that they don't have to frequently go to the rule book to know how a how a, a component or a playing card works. Yeah. And so that even further constrained us, right? So we had lots of ideas that we could have written a paragraph about, you know, what to do with if you play this piece. Uh, or this card, and that ended up cutting a lot of ideas out of the game because we just needed it to be brief and easy to understand. Yeah, 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 definitely. All right, let's. Uh, you mentioned theme. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, economic games can 
I mean, you can have lots of different things. That's what's really cool about this genre is like we mentioned before, you can have trains, you can have selling, you know, electricity, talking about power grid, you can have settling and buying houses. You know, you guys have this 1920s era fantasy thing kind of going on. It's almost like a, like a, like bright, the Netflix movie, you know, back in the 1920s uh, type of deal happening. And so like, tell me about theme and how you, you came up with, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this theme as opposed to another one. Well, I'm going to inject before Woody gets to it, but so Woody play. He showed me his his game, which was basically a simulation of his job, and we played it. And I was like, Woody, this isn't fun. I feel like I'm going to work. What can <laughs> we do? I mean, I think we just need to tack something on. Anyway, at the time we were playing a, you know, we're, we we've been playing a D and D campaign since 1999. Anyway, this campaign that we've been playing in is um, is really deep with characters and stories and it is you know it's an anachronistic uh, fantasy setting so it's it's a D fantasy setting but you know i've always you know there's lawyers roaming around you know i always include elements of the modern world in it you know just to because i think it's funny and it you know it drives uh, drives interaction with the characters so anyway you know what when we were deciding to, to apply the, this theme on it, which is basically an anachronistic fantasy world, you know, a, a fantasy world with some modern uh, elements in it, we were, we, Woody found this uh, artist and we were trying to describe, you know, what we wanted the artist to draw and to say fantasy with modern elements seems, I don't know, that's kind of really open. So I'm like, well, you know, let's constrain it down. I just seen Ken Burns. Um, he did a, he did a, a documentary on the, on the Great Depression era, and the you know the, the the Dust Bowl and Prohibition, and I was fascinated with that area, that period of time in America. So when I was talking to our artist, I said, "Hey, fantasy in 1920s Chicago, Al Capone," and he galvanized immediately on the 1920s. I, I was saying a little bit of 1920s, but we ended up going hard 1920s, and the art was so good, we ended up wrapping. We just made a left turn based on the art. And we we uh, completely absorbed that 1920s theme with a little bit of fantasy on it, which is what we've done. We you know the cards now, um, the cards and the elements all reflect this. Here's the coolest part about it is that emerging economies and emerging markets have been around, you know, since the dawn of time, right? right. So it it's not really you don't have to tack on a theme. You can kind of pick your environment, pick your time frame. And there was some sort of market that was emerging at that point, right? Uh, so in this case, you know, it, we had a lot of flexibility because we were talking about a high fantasy. Uh, we, we decided to focus in on prohibition. Uh, and then the, the next thing was, well, hey, well, what's going to make that interesting? How can we make it not just, again, a selling game? Well, and that's where we came across the, well, this, this we should be modeling a black market, right? right. So... Pretty much all the same rules applied, but the coolness of taking that approach was that we were able, it opened up more avenues for adding kind of depth and creativity to the game um, that, you know, we had not previously considered. So that led us into some new dimensions. Uh, so for example, you know, we have, a, a, obviously we have sales agents in the games. Uh, well, we added uh, racketeers. Well, racketeers, doesn't have like a exact replica in a you know business simulation of an emerging market, 
but it makes perfect sense in a 1920s era prohibition, you know, mobster feel. So yeah, that was that was a, a really it, it was nice to be able to pull off the richness, pull from the richness of Adam's uh, D and D campaign, and then mix in kind of the prohibition era, and the the net result I think is really kind of very cool period art. Right. Yeah. Right. I, ho- I hope you don't have to uh, teach racketeering to uh, the people that work for you. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's not something that uh, that comes up real often. Now let's uh, let's talk about prototyping. What did it look like to prototype a game like this with so many systems, so many things going on? Did you just do one system at a time, or did you kind of do the whole thing at the beginning and then cut your way down to something smaller? Like, what did that look like? So the 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 core of the game uh, involved multiple of these mechanics from the start. And so what I, what I would say that we've done from a prototyping point of view is if you were to look at kind of the generations of the maps uh, that we've used, for example, like the very first one I have drew was a map of the world or the U.S. And, okay, that's not exciting, as Adam said. Uh, so now we've got, then we moved immediately to his uh, campaign map for our D&D setting. We said, okay, this is good, but it doesn't enable the uh, gameplay mechanic to work out. What are we going to how are we going to add it so that people can know where to place their agents, right? We need merchants on the map. So how do we evolve that? Um, so, so that's how that side of it developed. And then the other thing we were continually refining, and I, I mean, up until just recently, is just kind of narrowing in and laser focusing on the theme uh, so that the roles, the titles we give the roles and what they do uh, are thematically appropriate but don't break the model, right? So we that's the other thing. You know, we always drew a line and said, okay, we're not, we've got a core model. We're not changing that core model, but how do we add depth to it? And, and that's kind of what we've done through prototyping is just iterated these cards. And, and one of those things that comes out of that is you start figuring out what's broken, like, okay, well, okay, so we changed this uh, card to have this feature and now, anybody who takes that card's winning the game, right? Or they're losing the game, but they take it because they think it's going to be really good. All right, well, that's maybe a problem. <laughs> so anyway, that's those are the kinds of things we had to do through prototyping was just test and test and test and see what we broke. Right, and the, the other thing with the prototyping and, and theme is that when we talk to game designers, a lot of people, they've designed their games with kind of theme agnostic and we did not. I mean, the economic model was there in the beginning, and then the fantasy model got added later. And I mean, I don't know how many times we've had a decision to make, and we say, okay, does it? You know, if it was just an economic game, what would this? What decision would we make? If it's a prohibition era game, what decision we would make? And we always judge that decision based upon how it applies to the model. If there's, if we don't know what the, the gameplay simplicity, you know, factors are. Yeah, definitely. And let's, let's kind of keep traveling down this road and get into playtesting. You know, when, whenever you started playtesting, what were, what were you looking for? Like, what were you trying to figure out? What systems were you trying to make sure were working? Like, help me understand your, your process just for, I mean, trying to figure out, and there's a lot going on, right? And so, like, tell me what, what you're writing your notes about and trying to make better. The, the number one thing was, <laughs> is, is it a game worth playing, right? Like, uh, and then notice, and I think other people comment on this, uh, you know, is it is it fun is maybe not exactly the words I would use, but is it a game worth playing? Like, I feel like I've had a good experience and the game is balanced and, uh, you know, all, 
all of those kinds of characteristics. So that was that was definitely one of the main things we had in mind. And I totally lost my train of thought. Well, the, well there was a point in time, actually, and I'm not kidding about this, that one of our friends sat down to play the game and didn't do anything. And at the end of the game, he was still in it. And we were like, ah, we got a problem. <laughs> we got a balance <laughs> problem. When if you don't take any actions, you are still in the game. And, you know, and if he was doing That's it just funny. to be kind of a jerk to us, but I mean, it did resonate, you know, we needed to have, we needed, we needed to make it so that actions mattered. That's, that's funny. There was actually, yeah, some more depth to that story that uh, I, I would be afraid it would go too long. But in, in short, we had an early mechanic where players would take on debt and those, those debt cards would effectively never go away. So your uh, player, uh, your draw pile would just be full of debt. And I thought, oh, this is cool because this simulates what uh, small businesses, you know, startups are doing is they're just either getting huge debt or taking out investments that it's not their money. And I thought, so at the end of the game, the company who's lost the least uh, is the winner, right? And then we realized, well, okay, yes, you could actually sit there and do nothing, not take on any debt and do better than the person who was active. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we <laughs> Which, you know, may, it might simulate real life. Honestly, you know, I've got lots of friends that made some really bad decisions, whether they were starting a restaurant or something like that, and, are, you know, are, are still paying that off and have nothing really to show for it. And so somebody sitting on the couch, you know, with zero dollars has more, a lot more money than somebody at negative a hundred thousand dollars. So, exactly. <laughs> but again, that's not necessarily a fun game mechanism, right? Where, you know, it's not something you're trying to simulate. All right. So what else, like what else were you looking at? Let's get into kind of the balancing, you know, balancing can be such a difficult thing, especially in an economic game where, where things need to really be balanced. This isn't like some, you know, overly, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word, like a super thematic game where it doesn't, where balance is necessarily, you know, not, not the biggest thing where if one character has a four, another one has a three, but it, you can't really tell because there's a bunch of dice rolling. There's a bunch of luck. There's a bunch of other stuff going on. So maybe the balance is not quite as big a deal, but I feel like an economic game balance is really important, especially if you don't have a ton of luck in the game to begin with. And so like, what were you looking at as far as like trying to balance things and what did that process like entail? So this was by far the hardest part of the, the playtesting and evolving the game experience is that there are so many interconnected relationships between these uh, models uh, that we put into the game that uh, you had to eventually develop a very sophisticated mental model that you can kind of carry around in your head and know that when somebody, you know, while playtesting said, oh, you should do this, uh, you know, other than saying, you know, thank you very much. We appreciate the comment. Uh, go back and think on it and say, okay, what does that do? What's the ripple effect of that? And uh, so a lot of times you could make a decision if you just understood the ripple effects, but we couldn't always spot them. And that was the thing. And, and some of them were very subtle. Uh, you know, we could make very small changes that would have very big swings in, uh, in gameplay. And, so it was a lot of testing and iteration. I mean, man, in the beginning, yeah. there was a point in time where, you know, I was using as a judgment call the the disparity of points between the first and second player. And if, you know, you want if you're if you're playing in about a you know 75 point game, you want that disparity to be about at most 10 points, roughly most of the time. You know, you want competitiveness. And in the beginning, when we were playing, we were getting like 70 point disparities, you know, in, in play style. And I don't, I, I thought we were almost, we were, it was a lost cause. 
And then Woody came up one day, and I don't really know what you did, but all of a sudden that disparity was down to like 10 or 15. And then we made, once we got it, once we accidentally hit on that, that magic combination that didn't cause massive swings, then it was change as little as possible and see what happens. And, and then it's been a, it's been a tuning job ever since. So. And here's where we should say, cause somebody listening to this is going, you, you know, you should have mathed this, right? You should have done the math and figured this, but that's not what we did. <laughs> you know, we did not like uh, put this through some uh, simulator, you know, program or something. Uh, this was a lot of experimenting and practical. Oh, wow. Look what that did. But, you know, you could not just do it once because sometimes you get a, a false uh, positive or a false negative. So we'd have to play multiple games to get through that. Yeah, now math is a question I get all the time. People send me emails trying to figure out math of their game and balancing things out. Now, if you could go back and kind of do this over again, would you would you change anything? Would you do anything different as far as figuring out the math of the game? Anything that would have made it easier or maybe any advice you'd share with somebody else now kind of going after going through this that would help them with their math and their game? I don't think we – I'd still do it the same way we did it this first time. So the because of the complexity of our game, and I'm, I'm going to say about – there's a bunch of games that are in our complexity and higher that unless you're going to create a computer AI to play it, you can't, there's no math. You know, the, the, what you're going to want to do is you want to, you want to create somebody that's going to play the game with a set set of rules and then, you know, turn the computer on and just run a thousand versions of that game and just take, you know, take numbers because the interactions are so, there's so many different, there's so many dimensions and man, the, the amount of effort just to do that, is non-trivial, you know, that I'd almost sit there and say, instead of putting your head down and programming for, you know, three or four weeks, just, you know, take a couple stabs at your game and keep, you know, keep playing it. You eventually, it all starts making sense in your head. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you, there's kind of a, a funny anecdote to that. And that is, we, we have done w exactly one computer simulation. Uh, and that one computer simulation was to determine the best way to assign start players yes. in the game. And I cannot tell you how many discussions we've had on this topic going into that, and maybe even still how many discussions we've had on that topic. But the, the point is, yeah, even after simu simulating it, we could say, okay, we can see a slight advantage to this player. I'm not giving away any spoilers. I'll give away, <laughs> you know, uh, how do we remedy that? So we did something in the game to remedy it. Yes. But that's that's kind of what I would say. I mean, I think, yeah, I wouldn't go too deep in simulation because, boy, you would just wear yourself ragged unless you're just a, a super awesome programmer. And even Adam Adam has been that in his past. Yeah. And and the, and the, the danger is I was talking to the, the developer of Keyflower when um, at Board Game Geek a couple of years ago, and I was asking, hey, what are you are you scared of anything? He's like. Yes, I'm scared that I didn't think of something and someone's going to figure out how to break my game. And the thing is, if you program, you program a bunch of AI. I mean, you're you're putting a, a constraint on something, and you might not see something that's obvious that other people see, and then you think you're going, you know, going forward thinking, oh, I got a nice tight game, and then there's this big hole. You have to play the game a lot. You just got to play the game. <laughs> you got to play a game with a lot of different people and a lot of different types and more people that are you know, attacking the game will flush out. I'm hoping everything. <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah, hoping. That's, I think that's where we are. Yes. I mean, we feel like we're in good shape, but 
stuff still gets exposed, right? Even at this, you know, I'll call it a late stage. Uh, we were playing uh, last week and I, I ran into a scenario that I had not accounted for in the rule book. I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> somebody would have asked about that. that. This would have ended up as a topic on, you know, some, some board forum, game geek forum yeah. somewhere. <laughs> I would have been like, huh. Okay, well, at least I'm glad I ran into this now, but we'll probably we'll see more of that. I think it's inevitable. There's so many kind of uh, interconnected pieces here that somebody's going to find a exploit or they're going to find something that we didn't quite tighten up yeah. enough. But we've done so much so far. I, I don't know what else we'd do. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think, you know, going back into the people sending me emails, I feel like a lot of times people are looking for that magic bullet. They're looking for some kind of magical algorithm or formula that you can kind of plug your game into and it's going to spit out all this information and data. And it just typically does not exist. Now, like you said, if you're an incredible programmer and you can kind of write all this code and figure out how to do that, okay, maybe so. But for the most part, like you're saying, you just got to play the game over and over and over again with lots of different people, lots of different mindsets, lots of different types of groups, and just hope that it hold, holds up. And when it doesn't, you tweak some things, you fix some things. But you know, if, if you've done if you've done your job as a marketer and a business as a business person, more people are going to play your game the day it comes out than at any time during playtesting. And so that being the case, more than likely you're not going to see everything. That's that's why the the beauty of a second edition, right, where you can kind of you know fix some things and change some some uh, numbers and whatnot. But one thing that you you mentioned the whole first player. Uh, or, or sometimes sometimes start player, sometimes final player uh, advantage, depending on the type of the game and how it works out. What were some of the things that, that you've done or that you've seen other games do that you really like that kind of fixed some of these first player or last player advantages, you know, where, where it's giving extra resources, giving extra, you know, turns, things like that. What have, what have, what have you done and what have you seen that you really liked? Well, I'll tell you, we, we looked at uh, quite a few different models for what other games have done. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, in a lot of worker placement games, uh, one of the things you can do is you could place a worker on the, uh, I'm going to be the start player of the next turn, right? So you've given up an action that you might otherwise have taken to do some, something else that benefited you in the game. You've taken an action to solidify that. Well, I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, other games would say, okay, well, uh, you know, the first player may be randomly assigned. And that's usually the case, right? Uh, but the second player, uh, the second time you start some new round of something, that's going to be de determined by either clockwise rotation. Uh, we tried that. Uh, maybe it's determined uh, by um, who's highest in some particular category, right? Like there's some there's some aspect of the game that uh, you've rewarded somebody for achieving, and now they're the second player. Or maybe alternatively. Uh, there's something they're really bad at or they're losing the game clearly and you need a catch-up mechanism. So you make them go first because now that's an advantage for them, right? So those were a couple of the examples that we looked at, but the, what, where we are currently, uh, and actually we're still a little bit deliberating on this, but what, we, what we've been playtesting the most now is that we randomly assign what end up being four different start players during the course of the game. The game has four seasons. We have four different uh, start players assigned. They're randomly picked. Uh, could they be picked in a way that affects game outcome? We don't really think so. Uh, we mostly want to handle the perception that there could be something wrong rather than that we believe there's something wrong. And it, that's that's really important to say that that way. And that's if I were somebody doing a game design, I'd want to make sure I covered, do people think this is a fair way to do it? Uh, more so than 
is it absolutely a fair way to do it? Yeah, perception is is far more important than reality. Like if, if gamers perceive that a game is not fair or that it's not balanced, even if it is, then they're right. I mean, either way, you know. So perception is definitely the way to go. What were you about to say, Adam? Yeah, I was going to add that all the all the ways that we've seen people handle the start player problem. The fact is, is that the person that's right behind the start player, by no fault of their own or no no nothing that they've done, they get an advantage over everybody else if you're going in a clockwise order and um, mm-hmm. there's a couple of games where you know they you the turn order moves around based upon position on a on a uh, you know some kind of uh, sideboard with player markers but that's really complicated so the true solution is to not make start player matter and i think that's what we've done now I've, i'm hoping that's what we've done you know it, from what we can tell that start player and ending player doesn't matter and th- that way you know, if somebody's the same start player all the time, it doesn't matter. So, I mean, that's what we've tried to do. Whether or not we've succeeded, I, I'm not, I'm hoping we have. It, it's funny, though, because we have, of all of the topics we've discussed, this may be one that's consumed most of our... Yes, we can go, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we can go forever on this, <laughs> this topic. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's let's talk about maybe some other things that you cut. You know, we, we've talked about playtesting and, and balancing, things like that. Were there any systems in the game that you were like, wow, this is just too complicated? Anything else that was just too complicated? Or anything you're like, this isn't fun? We talked about some of these things. Anything else that you could like kind of pull out of the recycling bin and dust off and, and share with somebody? So maybe if they're you know working on a game like this that they could learn from. Well, we talked about the gating mechanic already as uh, a mechanic that we ditched. The... I'm trying to think of their, what else have actually we there's one away? really big one, and that is that uh, from the inception the game was focused especially on competition. Oh, uh, that's right. Yep. And we had an iteration of the game where we went full tilt conflict, and there were just a group of players, a class of game players who did not like that at all. Just so that we, let's make our definition. So yeah. competition is when I build a better engine than Woody and I beat him because I have a better engine. Conflict is when I kill Woody. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So there's people that like to attack other people and there are people that like to build an engine and be better than everybody else. Yeah, so that's that's one of those really fundamental decisions that we made along the way. And I'll, I'll be honest, we kind of loosened somewhat <clears throat> The game is still 80% competition, but there's still some conflict elements. And those conflict elements do uh, kind of, you know, uh, cause people a little bit of grief at times. A lot of people embrace them. A lot of people say, why not more of that? Right. You know, maybe, maybe that'll be an expansion <laughs> idea or something. But yeah. So yeah, that's, I think, probably another great example in that category. Yeah. Now, have you worked through like variants? I've seen a lot of games like this that, that maybe don't have a lot of conflict, but then they have this extra deck of cards. And if you want more conflict here, you can add these you know extra cards in there and it increases the conflict between players. Have you looked into that or, or experimented with anything like that? Yes. So, and, and there, are a couple, there are a couple of different variants we're, we've looked at, we're still looking at. I, I think at this stage, uh, you know, we're uh, getting very close to our Kickstarter and we don't want to introduce something that we don't have plenty of time to play test. Um, But a lot of those are going into the, you know, expansion idea bin. Uh, Now now talk to me about what you've learned in, in maybe, you know, did you take something out and you're like, okay, maybe this could be a variant. Maybe this could be an expansion. Like walk me through like the kind of the process of it. Yeah, sure. So uh, one example that we're 
we've been actively discussing. Uh, in our game, there are uh, three recruiting seasons, basically. So you're, it's a deck builder. Uh, you start with a, a set of uh, eight cards. Uh, you go through recruiting seasons. You add additional cards in each recruiting season. And what we've found is that some of the players, after they've played multiple times, uh, would like to have a recruiting at the beginning of the game, okay? Uh, and in fact, we, we did early playtesting on that. And what we found was this can't be a core part of the game because so many people are gonna play this for the first time. And if that first time they play, they sit down and they've got eight cards, they don't know anything about what those eight cards do. And now they, they've got to go pick from a group of, I don't know, six to 10 other cards, what they want to add to their deck. You know, they have no way of knowing, right? So what we've narrowed in on is at some point, you know, this will be a variant. So why, why haven't we added as a variant yet? It's because we haven't really gone through and done the play testing and the balance. Because again, we know that these changes that all they do is just give you an extra recruit, have a fairly significant impact on how the game plays and how people score and how rapidly they improve their black market goods in our example. So that, that's been one of those fundamental uh, examples. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, really appreciate your time. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or any, any advice you would give to somebody who maybe is, is working on an economic game right now? Like, What would you tell them? I would tell them that please make it fun because <laughs> we'll play it. You know, any economic game that comes out now, uh, Woody and I buy and we play. Now, you know, the second thing I would say is, and this is one of those very early on decisions, uh, you know, as a newbie game designer, I was not at all considering the number of components in my game. And that has a big time impact when it comes to manufacturing costs <laughs> and prototyping costs. So that would be my one bit of advice is, Okay, what is it going to take to build this and prototype it and manufacture it? Don't ignore that for too long uh, because you may end up with so many components that your game ends up being really big. The, the other thing I like to add, um, and that is the when you're doing an economic game, I mean, come up with a model in your head. And then, you know, Woody and I have been very good about basing our decisions based on that model. So when we get when we go and play test the game and somebody says, why am I doing this? I mean. Woody and I, we have reasons why you're doing that, either, you know, balance issues or, you know, what, how it models in the real world. And, you know, it, it, it adds a depth, you know, to why you're taking certain actions. You know, all of our actions have some kind of uh, real world uh, line drawn to them that we can pull out and say, this is the reason. So, and that's, I think it's really valuable and really fun. So. Yeah, Definitely. Well, gentlemen, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and advice. Uh, like we've been talking about your game this whole time, but give me the, the Kickstarter details, player count, all that good stuff. Give me the, the two-minute elevator pitch. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, Plunderbund is a game for uh, two to five players, and uh, it is a, a Euro-style game with uh, light deck building, uh, worker placement, uh, some area of control, uh, components. And uh, you've heard a lot about the theme of the game so far already. Uh, fantastic theme, prohibition era setting, uh, you know, high fantasy characters that led to some really awesome artwork. So we really hope you'll take a look at the Kickstarter, uh, which will be out on March 19th. 
and uh, look forward to working with you to continue to improve the game. And of course, it's a it's an economic simulation of a black market emerging market. Well, Jim, I hope the uh, the Kickstarter goes really well, and so good luck with that, and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?